You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Deuteronomy. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there with us now. Well, we're going to try to uh, look at uh, five chapters tonight. Deuteronomy 7 uh, through chapter 11. And having reminded the people of the events of the past as we've looked at chapters 1 through 6, it was, it was really a reminder, it was a refresher course. And that's what Deuteronomy really is, is a reminder from Moses. And having done that in chapters 1 through 6, Moses now warns them of the perils and the imminent dangers and threats for the future. And you know, and, and we've studied the fact that for centuries, Israel was a slave nation in Egypt for 400 years. And now for 40 years, they've been a pilgrim nation. They've traveled, they've sojourned through the desert. And now they're about to settle in their own land for the first time in centuries. And that would be different for them. That would be something that they would need to uh, grow into and learn of the dangers and be aware of the threats and the attacks that would come from this new culture and this new environment that they are entering into. And so tonight as we look at these five chapters, we're going to see five dangers to the people, five dangers that they needed to recognize and avoid. And those things are compromise with the enemy. And of course, their enemy were the Canaanites, the indigenous people, the native people in that land. Our enemy is the devil. So we're going to look at that. Compromise with the enemy. Uh, we're going to see another danger, which would be fear of the enemy. A third thing, prosperity and self-satisfaction. A fourth thing would be pride and then deliberate disobedience. And so those are the five things that we're going to quickly look at as we make our way through these chapters. So let's read chapter 7, verses 1 through 16, keeping in mind this danger of compromise with the enemy. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them nor show mercy to them. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord was aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other nation or people. For you were the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because you would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the land and the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, 
the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And He repays those who hate Him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with Him who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which He swore to your fathers. And He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land of which He swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. Also you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. And so the first thing that Moses warns them against is compromise, and specifically compromise with the enemy. And the enemy in their situation were these indigenous native people, all these seven Gentile nations that they are now going to encounter when they enter the promised land. And it was God's purpose and God's plan to drive these heathen, pagan, godless people out of the land and to establish the nation of Israel in this land. God had given this land to them. It was theirs to possess. But He warned Israel to utterly destroy these nations. In other words, look, these people are there and you're not to go and cohabitate with them. You're not to go and to figure out how you can get along with them. You're to go and to destroy them. You're not to compromise. And there was a twofold reason for this. First of all, these nations were wicked. And like I was talking about on Sunday, we often look at our nation and we think, wow, this is a godless nation. This is a post-Christian society. And and people will throw around terms like, you know, this is the, the most godless culture ever. And, and this is the hardest culture to to ever seek God and to serve God in. And in reality, a cursory study of history will tell you that that isn't true. Because we know that these, these nations here did things that would absolutely shock even the most godless among us today. They would sacrifice their children on, on the altar, hot burning altars. They would do all sorts of crude and lewd practices sexually. Uh, bestiality and and all sorts of things were were commonplace in these nations, and so to to think that our nation is is the the only nation that's ever allowed these things is is really to be ignorant of history. But what is the case is that our nation is allowing these things for the first time, and so we're only repeating history. We're only going down the road that many other nations 
have gone down. And so God is telling the Israelites, look, these people are opposed to me and they need to be judged. They were ripe for judgment. And it's not like God just arbitrarily made this decision without giving them any time to repent. And some scholars really believe that the reason that Israel was tucked away in Egypt for 400 years was to give the Canaanites space to repent. It was to give them time to turn. And they never did. And we see that God is very slow to judge. And even in our society and in our culture today, we know that God could pour out His judgment at any time. That Jesus could come back at any time, but He's, he's slow to pour out His wrath. He's slow to judge. And God is giving our world right now time and space to repent. And He gave these Canaanites plenty of time, but there has to be a, a line drawn. At some point, God has to say enough. At some point, God has to judge. And, and He's going to do that in our world. At some point, at some time, God will judge. We don't know when that's going to be, but no one will have excuse. No one's going to be able to say, you know what, God didn't give me enough time. And I think people read Deuteronomy and they read Old Testament passages and they think, wow, this isn't fair. What kind of a God is this that just judges these people? And we, we tend to package God a lot like our personality and the way that we want God to be. And, and people that struggle with a judge, with a God of judgment will just talk about all of the things and attributes of God that they like. And they'll, they'll present God as this, you know, loving, kind, forgiving, gracious God, which He's all of those things. But then we want to leave out the fact that God is a God of judgment. And people will say, well, I don't want to serve God if, if He would do this, if He would judge an entire people group. And the thing is, is that God is perfect. He's holy. We don't understand His ways. And we don't understand how God can be perfectly loving and at the same time perfectly wrathful and perfectly judgmental. We don't understand that. But that's our God. And we worship Him in light of those things. Not because He's a sugar daddy and He just, you know, always is is giving and just always forgiving. We worship Him because He's perfect. He's perfect in all of those attributes. And so the, there's a few reasons for this judgment. First of all, the nations were wicked and ripe for judgment. A second thing, if left in the land, if left to just do whatever they want to do, the nations would lead Israel into sin. And so people that don't understand the judgment of God will argue about these things. But if they understood the sinfulness of mankind and the fact that God has given us plenty of time to repent and the fact that, that God has sent His Son to bring forgiveness. And people have rejected that and have gone over His dead body to rebel against God. We wouldn't have people criticizing or people second-guessing the Lord. And, and God wanted Israel to be set apart. He wanted them to be holy. And that's what He wants for us. God wants us to be holy. He wants us to be set apart. And we talk a lot about the fact that 
we need to get into our community, into our culture, and make a difference. And, and we need to reach this nation, this society, specifically this community that we live in. That's our calling. It's our mission. We are missionaries. Jesus said, just as I was sent, so I'm sending you. And we talk a lot about that. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that I think the reason that the church is making little difference in our culture is because people see little difference in the church. And that's why people say, you know, that we're hypocrites. And there's really a lot of truth to that. Because if you think about it, for the first time in the church's history, people are learning about the church from other mediums than the church itself. When you talk to somebody who doesn't go to church and you tell them or invite them to come to church, the first thing that comes to their mind is the things that they've seen on TV. And so cable television is a, a big demonstration of what we supposedly are. People see that. People see how we act in the community, how we act at the workplace, how we handle ourselves. And that's what people see. And I think that we're making very little impact on our culture and on our society because people see very little difference in us. And so God wanted this nation to be separate. And He says that they're going to do that by doing battle with their enemy. And we've been talking a lot about doing battle with our enemy on Sunday mornings in Ephesians chapter 6. You guys, we are in the midst of a, of a battle. We are in the midst of, of a war. And there's a war going on in your members, Galatians 5 says, where your flesh is battling your spirit, where the old man, the old you, what used to define you is battling the new man, the new you, what should define you. And we are also facing a battle against the enemy of our souls, the devil. He wants to destroy us. And we have to be very intentional in our walk with the Lord in that we are not going to give in to these enemies. We are not going to allow them to infiltrate us. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. We are going to go on the offensive. We have to be proactive. Just like the nation of Israel. If they just went across the river and, and just said, you know, this is good right here, and just camped out, they wouldn't be doing what God had. They had to go on the offensive and root out and destroy and run these people out of their lives and out of their influence. And it meant they had to put them to death. You guys, Romans chapter 6 says we need to put our old man to death. We need to rely upon Jesus who essentially put the devil to death on the cross. And it hasn't taken full effect yet. But He is powerless in our life unless we give Him power. He's dead to us. Just like these enemy nations were dead to them. And they had to just, in a sense, recognize that these nations were dead. And go in and just take ownership. Go in and claim the victory that God had given them. And so that's the first thing. Compromise with the enemy. Let's move on. Verse 17. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? 
You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until those who are left who hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you, little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And He will deliver their kings into your hand and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it to yourselves, lest you be snared by it, tripped up by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. So the second thing that Moses warns them against is fear of the enemy. And I think that in the church there there really is two extremes that we tend to get into when it comes to the devil. Because as people, we're super unbalanced. It's, it's like the church can never find that balance when it comes to things. It's like we either want to throw the baby out with the bathwater or we just want to go like nutso about stuff. You take the gifts of the Spirit. Churches either want to say they don't exist at all today and, and you know, anything that's outside of my little box of, of you know, what I accept as true is not for today or we want to just go nuts and hang off the chandeliers and you know roll in the aisles and 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 there's just a lack of balance in a lot of areas in our life and i think another one is with the enemy with the devil it's like churches think if we don't talk about him then he doesn't exist or there's the other side that's like the devil is in everything and there's demons attached to different sins and pretty soon we're we're blaming the devil for things that I don't think he had a whole lot to do with because our flesh is powerful in and of itself and we don't have to fear the devil I think part of that getting way out into either extreme can really be based upon fear and the Bible tells us that that we haven't been given a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind and fear usually leads to compromise. We give in to those things to protect ourselves. And God was telling them, look, don't be afraid of these nations. They are powerless in your life. You guys, we needn't be afraid of the enemy, the devil, nor of our flesh or of those sins that just seem to loom in our life. We needn't be afraid of those things. God has given us victory. God has, has given us a way of escape. God has given us the opportunity to, to find a place in our life where 
we can conquer those things because it's already been accomplished. And so we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to feel like, you know what? I'm just going to give in. Like the Israelites basically said about many of these cities and these people groups. You know what? They're too powerful. They're too numerous. It's impossible, God. I know that You said that we have victory over them, but I don't see it with my physical eyes. I don't sense it. And so I'm not going to believe You the same fear that really caused them to wander around in the desert for 40 years to begin with. They were right up there at Kadesh Barnea 38 and a half years previous to this. And what did they say? We know what You said, Lord. We know that You get, you said we have victory, but we don't believe You. And we'd rather march around out here in the desert than believe Your Word. And I think that's what we do as believers. God, I know that You said You've given me victory over the enemy over the devil, but I don't really believe it. God, I know that You've said You've given me victory over my flesh, over that sin, fill in the blank. I don't really believe it though. I don't really trust You. It's too hard. It's too much. It's too difficult. It's too numerous. It's too powerful. And God is saying to us, look, don't be afraid. Because what what does the Bible tell us in Proverbs? The fear of man brings a snare. And if We're afraid of these things, not in the sense of fear like shaking in your boots, but the sense of fear, intimidation, that you just can't get over these things. Let this be an encouragement to us tonight that we've been given the victory, that we've been given the opportunity to go in and to utterly destroy these things. And maybe there's there's just stuff in your life like these cities and God says, man, I want you to go and I want you to destroy that thing. I want you to go and I want you to run that thing out of your life. There, there's high places. And, and the, the reason that God wanted these cities utterly destroyed, as I said, was partially because He didn't want them to infiltrate and influence the Israelites. And if we've allowed the enemy and our flesh to plant cities in places of worship to false gods in our life, we've got to destroy those things. You remember the King Josiah? Part of the reason why he was such a, an amazing king, even though he was super young, he started his reign at eight years old. Part of the reason why he was such a, a godly king was because the first thing that he administered was the destruction of the high places, of the worship of false gods. And he did that at a young age. And, you know, maybe you haven't been walking with the Lord that long. It doesn't mean that you can't root those things out of your life. It doesn't mean that you can't take care of that. We needn't fear the enemy. Chapter 8. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. So He humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. In other words, you didn't know where it came from. You couldn't explain it. That He might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. 
Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. In other words, your, your shoes didn't wear out to cause your feet to swell up. For 40 years, they walked around the desert with the same shoes, the same clothes. Think about that. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways and to fear Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread with scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, or excuse me, without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. In other words, there's just prosperity. There's abundance. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His judgments, and His statutes, which I command you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, and literally that Hebrew word means to become proud, and you forget the Lord your God you, that brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and ter- terrible wilderness in which you saw fiery serpents and scorpions and a thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who led you and fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that He might humble you and that He might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant, which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord God destroys before you, so you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. And so basically, the danger here that he warns of in chapter 8 is of prosperity and of self-satisfaction. That when they get into the land, a land that is totally blessed, a land that is abundant for them, that when they get there, it is going to cause them to think, you know what, I earned this. I deserve this. I really made this happen. It's about me, isn't it, Lord? And that you forget God and you turn your back on God. And that's why God is very careful to give us prosperity and abundance. Like Proverbs 30 says, Lord, keep me from poverty so that I don't have to beg bread and make you look bad. But Lord, keep me from prosperity too because I might forget you. Just keep me in that place where... My needs are met, but I'm having to depend on you. And you know what? That's where the majority of us are at. And that's a good place to be. Because we have to be dependent on God. And God says, don't forget me when you get there. Don't forget the fact that I led you around the desert and I gave you food every day. Think about that for a second. 
when you begin to to worry about where you're going to find your next meal or where you're going to pay your next bill or how you're going to take care of your basic necessities that God said He will provide for you like He does for all of the animals. And there's a lesson in that for us with the rest of creation that God provides for them. And He'll provide for for us. We're the only part of creation that really worries about you know those basic necessities. God says, I want you to look back on the times that I provided for you. Because we have short-term memory loss when it comes to those things. And we get into situations where we don't see it happening right now and we forget about all of the other times just like the children of Israel would have a propensity to do. Every day they woke up and there was manna. Every day. You would think that that would really make a difference in your theology. That every day you open up your tent and there's bread right there. You would think the fact that this rock just kind of moved around and it was like this magic rock that water just flowed out of when you spoke to it. It's pretty incredible. You would think the fact that that after a few years of walking around the desert in these harsh conditions and that your clothes and your shoes never wore out, that that ought to tell you something. But we do the same thing. Because here we are at whatever stage in life that we're in and God has provided for us. None of us have starved to death. We wake up every morning and there's there's food for us to eat. Now maybe it's not just miraculously out on our doorstep, but God provides. We turn on the faucet and there's water. And for me, that's a miracle because I don't even know how that works. And if it doesn't work, I've got to call somebody to fix it. But in a sense, we are a, a nation that takes those things for granted. There, There are still people in this world that don't have that. And certainly... Up until the last hundred years, most of the world never had such a thing. And so we have to remember how blessed we are. How blessed that that we are that, that yeah, our clothes do wear out, but when they do, we can just go buy new ones. And and God just provides for us. But man, as soon as we get an inkling, a notion that maybe we aren't going to be able to pay that bill or take care of that necessity, we start to worry. We start to freak out. We start to question God. And we forget about all of the things that He's already done. We forget about all of the other times that He provided for us. And I remember when I was a kid, after we came to Christ, you know, uh, when I was a freshman, we we began to do this um, this thing we called the blessing box. And my mom had it on the fridge. And, and every time up on top of the fridge. Every time something cool would happen, we would write it down and we would drop it in the blessing box. And then on New Year's, we would open up the blessing box and we would read of the things that God did in the previous year. And it'd be like, oh man, I forgot about that. Wow, yeah, that was really cool. And it's amazing that even in a year, you can forget what God has done. And so basically what God is warning them against in this passage here in chapter 8, don't forget my blessings. Don't forget what I've done. Don't begin to think that it's about you. Whether it be in times of prosperity, which he talks about here, that when you are blessed, that you think, you know what? Man, I'm pretty good, aren't I? I'm pretty talented. Look at what I've done with myself. Don't go there, the Lord says. But also in times of lacking. In times where things are tight, God says, don't forget about me there either. Because I didn't go anywhere. Maybe 
I'm waiting to provide for you to see how you're going to respond. Chapter 9. Here Paul, not Paul, Moses, talks about pride. He says, Hear, O Israel, you were to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves. That's important. These nations were more powerful than them. But what does God tell us? That He uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That's why God whittled Gideon's army down. 3,200, it's too many, Gideon. What do you mean we're going up against 300,000? We're already short-staffed. No, we're going to whittle it down to 300. Because when you win, and you will win, when you win and you destroy the Midianites, I'll get the glory that way. 3,000 people, 3,200 people, maybe I don't get the glory that way. Maybe you say, well, you know, we had this powerful army. But with 300, I'm sure to get the glory. And that's why God uses the people that He uses. I look at my life and I think, Lord, why do you use me? And it's clear why the Lord uses people like me. Because He gets the glory that way. Nobody looks at me and says, you know, I can really see why God would use that guy. No, people look at me and say, there's nothing really spectacular about this guy or about this gal, but God uses them. God wants to get the glory. And He says, look, these people are more powerful than you, but you will win. There are people that are great and tall. They're the descendants of the Anakim, which were the giants, whom you know and of whom you heard. Heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore, understand today that the Lord your God is He who goes before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. So again, the pride. Don't think it has anything to do with you. You guys, the things that we see the Lord doing in our lives, the the areas that He's using us, man, it has nothing to do with us. It's nothing to do with our righteousness. It's because that God uses the foolish things of this world. That He may fulfill the word of which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. So in case you want to get self-righteous, he's reminding them of their rebellion in the wilderness. From the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Also in Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry enough with you to have destroyed you. When I went up into the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord God made with you, then I stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. Then the Lord delivered to me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And it came to pass at the end of forty days and forty nights that the Lord gave me two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, 
Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here. For your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from from the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded image. Furthermore, the Lord spoke to me, saying, I have seen this people, and indeed they are stiff-necked people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourself a molded calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. And he goes on and he talks about the story of of how he threw down the tablets and he destroyed the tablets and then he destroyed the, the calf and how he interceded for them because God wanted to judge them. God was ready to destroy them. God was ready to wipe Aaron out for leading them into this sin. And, and Moses interceded for them, which I think is a, a picture of Jesus who took the wrath of God for us, who intercedes for us, the Bible says, on a daily basis. Because we are a stubborn and rebellious people and we keep doing the same stupid stuff. And, and I think that Jesus just keeps interceding for us. And the cross is always there taking the wrath of God. And God is telling them, look, don't for a minute think that you've got your act together. Don't think that my blessings or the fact that I'm driving these people out to settle you has anything to do with you. Because you guys are a bunch of spiritual losers is what he's telling them. Like Jesus said, you're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You've got nothing to offer God. And here's another reason why I think the church is making such little impact in the culture that we live. It's because we begin to think that we're righteous, that we're better, that we've got our act together. And man, if these people would just get their act together and it becomes us versus them, it becomes the believer and the unbeliever, the non-believer, and it becomes sort of this competition almost, as if we're battling against flesh and blood, as if we're better than they are. And that's why we begin to isolate ourselves. And that's why we begin to put the adjective Christian in front of everything. Since when did the word Christian become an adjective? The word Christian is a noun. It's who we are. But it doesn't describe music. It doesn't describe movies. It doesn't describe a little subculture that we reside in. It was never supposed to be that way was never supposed to be us versus them. And that is why I think we are making very little impact on the world because we are basically saying we're better than you. We don't want to be around you. And we take the mindset of the Pharisees who wouldn't even walk on the same side of the street as a Gentile for fear that they might be tainted and become unclean. And it's kind of what the church does. Oh, I, I don't associate with those people. We're going to go and picket that group. We're going to go and, and tell these people why they're going straight to hell. As if that's making any kind of an impact on them. And it's a spiritual pride. And spiritual pride is the worst kind of pride. It was the pride that fueled the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And think about this for a second, you guys. Think about how far we have come as a church. 
And when I say church, I mean capital C. Think about where Jesus hung out. Sometimes He hung out at church, at the synagogues, and it was there that He really had very little impact. They didn't believe Him. Most of His ministry was out in the highways and in the byways of the culture in which He lived. And I think we would be absolutely shocked at the places that Jesus would be if He were incarnate among us today. I think sometimes that we want to flee to our own little subculture so that we don't have to associate with the world at all. And the church is meant to be a place where we come and we are fed and equipped. But man, it's not meant to define our life. And here's the thing. That the church is not somewhere you go. The church is who you are. The word is ekklesia. In the Greek, it means the called out ones. As I said earlier, Jesus met with those disciples in John chapter 20. Remember, He walked through the wall. He had a meal with them. And it says that they were there behind closed doors because they feared the Jews. Right? They were there because they were afraid. What were they afraid of? That they were going to end up like Jesus, crucified. They were His disciples. And we have to get inside the mind of the Jew at that time When you were a disciple of a rabbi, you followed him everywhere. Jewish disciples might even follow their rabbi into the bathroom in case he had some word of wisdom to share with them at that moment that they didn't want to miss. Okay, It wasn't like they hung out with Jesus on the weekends. It wasn't like Jesus called them up and said, Hey, you want to come over and watch football? Haven't seen you all week. No, they were with him all the time. Everybody knew his twelve disciples. It was very, very clear. And they ran for their lives. They're there because they feared the Jews. And Jesus came in and He said, Look, the Father sent me. I'm the first missionary. I stepped out of my culture and I came to your culture. And now I'm sending you. Go into all the world. Every nation, every tribe, every people group. And see, in that time, they didn't have nations the way we do. When Jesus was saying, they didn't have the United States and Canada and England and Italy, Germany. They didn't have these separate nations. The way they would be divided up were were, were people groups and different cultures. And you guys, even in the midst of a predominantly white community that we live, there are different people groups and different perspectives and different ways of looking at things in different subgroups that Jesus is calling us to. And we are not called to huddle up together behind closed doors like that early church was. Jesus said, get out. Go. Don't be afraid. I'm the first missionary. Now I'm sending you. I'm commissioning you to be missionaries. To go and to engage the culture with the Gospel. And what is God calling you to do? He's not called us to be a church only when we gather together corporately. You are called to be the church every day. You are the church. You're the called out ones. You're the sent ones. And so church, you guys, is not something that we do. It's who we are. And so this spiritual pride can really, really limit what God wants to do. In the last point, chapters 10 and 11, I'm not going to read them. We're we're totally out of time. Deliberate disobedience is what these chapters are all about. God said, look, I've asked you to do this, and that's what I want you to do. It's very simple. 
to obey. You remember Saul? Saul came up with his own obedience plan. Saul kind of came up with his own idea and he justified in his mind how he was going to do things. And Samuel said, no. God made it real clear to you. You were to wipe out the Amalekites, much like they were to wipe out the Canaanites. And Saul didn't do it. And that's a whole other study of itself. But basically it came down to Saul compromised what God told him to do. And Samuel said, look, Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. Because Saul thought, well, you know, I'll bring back some of the loot and some of the cash and some of the stuff, and then I'll give some of it to God. I'll sacrifice that to the Lord. And, and Samuel said, look, obedience is what God wants. What God wants most of all, you guys, is obedience. And God has made it very simple. And he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll do what I said. And, and he goes on in these chapters to just simply say that in, in a couple chapters. Moses appeals to them, look, when you enter the land, do what God is telling you to do. Don't turn your back on the Word of God. What is God asking from us? Is there areas of our life that we are not being obedient to the Lord in? Is there maybe a ministry that God is asking you to step into that you're not obeying Him in? Is there a sin that God is saying, I want you to, to get that out of your life and you're not obeying Him in that? Is there something that God is calling you from or to do that you're not obeying Him in? And it's basic what He says here. There's two choices. Obey me and be blessed or disobey me and be cursed. There were two very basic options. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time in worship. Like I said, we we ran over our time a little bit here. But we're just going to spend a little bit of time just in response to, to what we talked about tonight. Typically, we, we worship and then we hear the Word. And, and, and tonight, I wanted us to hear the Word and then have an opportunity to respond to God in worship. And so, why don't we stand together? And I don't know how the Lord has spoken to you tonight, but whatever it is, man, just just allow the Lord to to make that real to you and, and to to bring that home into your heart. Let's worship Him. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you may email us at info at calvarycrookcounty.com. Or if you would like to write to us, you may do so at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thank you for listening, and God bless.